One of the greatest fears of a mother is that everybody's going on with life and you just hope that your daughter will not be forgotten. It's burned right into your soul and in, into your heart and your mind. I'm journalist Angela Kennecke. I lost my oldest child, Emily, to fentanyl poisoning in 2018. Emily was just 21. Her death was preceded by years of struggle, the struggle of addiction so many families face today. We were just three days away from holding an intervention when she died. We couldn't save her. There's a term called amelioration of grief, and it means that grief takes time, and it will get better only if you put work into it. In this podcast, I'm grieving out loud with other parents who've lost children and with those currently struggling with the monster of addiction. I didn't want to go into withdrawal. It was like one of the biggest fears of my life at the time. You were terrified of withdrawal? Terrified. Why? It is the worst pain, um, illness, the worst feeling that I could ever imagine having. I'm also learning from experts in the field on how we can and must do better to treat this disease of the brain. We treat the addiction and the effect of the addiction, but we're not looking at the pain. The root. The root cause. Today I'm joined by Megan Iacker. Megan is just 30 years old. She struggled with both meth and heroin addiction for about seven years. She's from small town South Dakota, grew up on a farm, not somebody that you would necessarily think would fall into uh, the disease of addiction, mm-hmm. but it did happen to her. She has been in recovery for a year and a half, and she has a lot of reasons for that recovery. One very special one, and we're going to talk about that and what her mission is now, and also what worked for Megan, because no two addictions are really the same. And I think we can all learn from other people's journeys about what can work, what doesn't work. And try to open our minds to ways to treat this disease of the brain. So, Megan, thank you so much for being with me today. Yes, I am so excited for this opportunity. Thank you, you reached out to me and I said, hey, you want to do a podcast? Because I want to know what works for people. And I know what works for one person won't necessarily work for the other. Mm-hmm. But I think we can all gain something by hearing what is successful for different people Tell me, let's go back, though, before we start talking about what worked to get you into recovery. You grew up in Salem, South Dakota. That is a tiny town Mm -hmm. in northeastern South Dakota. You grew up on a farm, Mm -hmm. I assume traditional type family setting. Yep, absolutely. Mom, dad, brother and sister and yep, a family farm. Were you raised in a faith? Um, Catholic, yes. Raised Catholic. Yep. Uh, When did you start experimenting, maybe using substances? When I was in high school, I started using a little bit, um, but it mainly started after hair school. Okay, when so I moved you went to, to cosmetology school or Yep, I moved to um, the Twin Cities to go to Aveda Institute Cosmetology. Which is a great school. Yes, and I graduated with my cosmetology license and esthetician license, and um, after that I fell into drugs. After that? Yes. So what... What was it? Did you think in high school, what did you start with in high school? Was it drinking marijuana? What did you... Drinking and marijuana. Which is really typical, I think. Yes, absolutely. Did you know at that time that you could be susceptible to something like this? Absolutely not. You you didn't know? No, I absolutely, I knew nothing. Like I did actually have, my ex-fiance was an ex-addict and he, I remember I brought 
alcohol home one time and he had told me I can't have that in the house because I am sober and that's going to trigger me. And I was like, who can ever be addicted to anything? How so you felt like you couldn't be? Oh yeah. Did not ever think anybody could be addicted to something. So you went to Aveda, which is a great school. You're you know, going to start your career working in a salon or something like that? Yes, yep. And what prompted you to, to start using again then? If you hadn't really used that much, I mean, if you made it through school, obviously you were doing mm-hmm. okay. I just met a wrong crowd and they introduced... Was the people. Yep. They introduced me to Oxycontin. So in the pill form or... In the pill form, yep. And they were cutting it up into lines and snorting, and snorting it. it. Yeah. So what made you decide, I'm, I'm going to do this, I'm going to try this? I you just know? no. You Honestly, don't really I don't know. know. So you would have been maybe like twenty. Yeah, twenty-one. Twenty-one. Mm-hmm. Okay. And up until that point, your parents probably think, "Oh, what? You know, she's on the right track. She's going to school. She's going to have a job, and everything's mm-hmm. going to be fine." Yep. Was it the first use? The second use? What was it? The second, third use, where I was like, "Okay, I'm really liking this," and then it just hooks you and. After that, you keep using because you like it. It's fun and exciting and you feel different. And then all of a sudden you're starting to not feel so good because you need it. The withdrawals. The withdrawals. Did you get that? You know, they always say that the first high that you get, you can never match it again. And you're always chasing that initial high. Did you ever have that experience? No, not for me. I was the type of addict that every high was the best high for me. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So you start with the pills, and mm-hmm. at some point, did you, you must have progressed beyond that. I mean, if you used both meth and heroin. So how did that mm-hmm. happen? And I suppose you never thought you would do something like that. That's what I think yeah. where the shame comes in, right? Yeah, absolutely. I never thought I'd do that. Um, I ended up meeting, or I came moved back after I broke up with my fiancé. Moved back to South Dakota. So you were living yep. in Minneapolis. Moved back you? here for a year to South Dakota, and I went to outpatient treatment. That was my first treatment I went to at Keystone Outpatient Treatment. And um, I... And you were just using pills at that time? Yep. And um, I completed... I shouldn't say just pills, but well, you know yeah. what I mean. <laughs> and um, at that time, I completed that treatment, and I was like, nah, I just want to get back to Minneapolis. I just want to get back because I wanted to do drugs. I wanted to do Why didn't it work? Because that setting... Um, and, it, and I don't want to bash any particular exactly. program, but I think so often... Uh, addicts go through multiple treatments and and people who love them are so hopeful they're like oh this is going to be the fix and this is going to work and it cannot work for a variety of reasons it may not be mm-hmm. that it's a, a bad treatment center it just might not been, have been right for you yep it wasn't right for me and it definitely wasn't the time either I wasn't ready I just did it for my mom and dad really yeah I just did it because I you know felt like you know that I should do this for my family I should you know just kind of try and get better because I knew I was going down a bad road. You knew you were going down a bad yeah. road. And how old were you when you went through the treatment? About first 22, time? 23. Yeah. So still pretty young. Yep, still pretty young. And then I moved back to Minneapolis. I saved up a bunch of money. I moved back to Minneapolis and the friends that I was doing um, pills with were now shooting heroin. So they had progressed in their yes. illness as well, which it is really a progression of the disease. Absolutely. Yeah, because at some point you can't afford the pills. Yep. And they're not giving you enough of a high, so people move on to heroin. Yes. Typically, that's how it works, and I assume... That's exactly how it works. So did you get right into that when you went back? Or yep, I started smoking heroin, and then... Smoking. And usually, is it, it was the thought... <laughs> so let's talk about this for a minute, because as I've said over and over again, 
we knew something was wrong with my daughter. She was 21. And we met with the interventionist before her death. And we were like, what is she doing? Is she doing meth? What is she doing? Because it's just, we don't know what it is. And she won't tell us. And we knew she was a marijuana smoker. And we didn't like that. We tried to stop that. Mm -hmm. And of course, she didn't want to stop that. But we really didn't know what it was. And so I I think the way my daughter was raised, like I, she, I believe she probably started smoking it or using pills first. But to think of her injecting that in, into her body is just, I can't even fathom it. So tell me how, how that happens. You start off smoking. Yeah, you start off smoking and then you... And then I started smoking meth after that because um, I had somebody tell me, well, why don't you try meth? Because it's better than heroin. I was like, what? So I tried that. And then I had, and then it just progressed to somebody else being like, well, have you ever tried the needle? No, it's way better high. Okay. So I had somebody shoot me up for the first time and. You didn't do it yourself. No. And it was something that I fell in love with. It's just. Explain. It's. I I fell in love with the needle more than the drug after all of this. It just, it's like this high that, it's like that first high that you're chasing, it's like that every time. It's just, it, it just feels so good. I don't, it's. So tell me, the needle itself or the drug? The drug. The drug. You know, it's even so actually. So you fell in love with using the drug that way. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. even like putting the needle in and having pulling it back and having the blood come out, seeing the blood and pushing it back in. I mean, you even get a high off of that. Jessica Fow told me that too. Uh, so I, I was interviewing another um, addict whose journey I have followed, and I think that's pretty typical. Do you yes. think that's typical? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So it's a psychological thing too then. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, a, a chemical, uh, physiological dependence, and then also a psychological dependence. Yes. Were you ashamed that you had, Yeah. did you not care? I did and I didn't. I, when I would go to treatment, my parents would be like, all right, it's time for treatment. I'd go to treatment. And when I would go through treatment, I would be sober for a certain time. Then when I relapsed, I felt very ashamed. Yeah, it was a terrible feeling. Every did your time. parents know you were doing these drugs? Or yeah. Or did they know the extent of it? After a while, yeah. You couldn't hide it. Right. Why use meth because a lot of times I think we have the idea that either people do meth or people do heroin and I have reported and I know that there is a huge trend now of people doing both they use meth to get up and get going in the morning and they use heroin in the evenings to wind down and to sleep and then it becomes this vicious cycle of I mean just a terrible cycle and and there is no really good treatment for meth either out there in terms of uh, some sort of medically assisted treatment Right. And um, meth was actually my number one. Um, I would rather have shoot or I'd rather shoot up meth than I did heroin. But um, so you used a needle with meth as well. Yes. Um, the quicker, um, just easier to get that high. Yeah. And it's a whole different high when you use the needle than smoking it. It's a whole different high. Mm-hmm. Um, you actually like when you actually shoot it up, you sometimes can't even open your eyes for like 10 minutes. And it's just almost like a kind of a heroin feeling in a way it's just it's different and then you are up 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 and go and then I would be that type of person that has a lot of anxiety issues so um it would be too much and my heart would be pounding too much and so I would kind of start freaking out so then I was like oh I need the heroin so then I would 
showed up heroin and then it would be like just this even perfect balance for me Oh, you, you did kind of a cocktail, a combination yes. of both yep. drugs. Oh, mm-hmm. interesting. And I would think if you do have anxiety, I know uh, people that have anxiety, they can't even have a cup of coffee, right? Because exactly. it just makes you, and, and meth would be like a hundred times that, I yeah. think. I was, a, I was a wreck on meth. I was a terrible, terrible wreck. I Explain what you mean. I caught my first DUI um, on meth. I called the cops on myself because I thought somebody was following me. Paranoia. Paranoia. Very much paranoia. And just would go home to my parents and yell at my mom and be violent with my mom. And it was, it was a mess and it just didn't, it, we did not get along, me and Method. You know, we did not get along at all. And it's just, it's so sad to look back on how I treated people and how I acted. You know, let's talk about that for a minute because people uh, who are listening to this can't see you and I'm looking in your eyes and mm-hmm. I'm seeing tears in your eyes. Mm-hmm. Why do you feel that way yet now? Why does it bring tears to your eyes to think about that time and what happened? Because of who I am today. You're not that person. That's not who you are. No, absolutely It never not. was who you were. No, absolutely not. And um, I have changed so much today by the grace of God. I... My faith is so big that God has completely changed me in a way that I could have never imagined to be. And having a daughter saved my life. Well, we're gonna get we're yeah. gonna get to that baby of yours in just a second. I don't want to spoiler alert, but right. I want to know about the shame because you talk about you know treating your mother poorly, treating other people poorly, even yourself. Yeah. And you're a good girl from farmland in South Dakota. I mean, this is not what you're supposed to do. Right. Everybody knows that. You know that. Mm-hmm. Yet, we have so little understanding about the disease of addiction and how it affects the brain and the inability to stop. I'm sure there are countless times you wanted to stop. Absolutely. I mean, my first treatment I went to was in... Um Minneapolis and I went there for 11 days and after that 11th day I just couldn't handle it anymore I was wanting to use so bad and I again went for my parents and I was just there to just be there and I was scared to death and I didn't know what to do you know going through those withdrawals and it was just a mess so I left after the 11th day and I went back out using for two weeks and after that two weeks I I was just I couldn't hardly walk I was up for 10 days you know I was just to the max so I called my mom and asked her hey can you bring me to Tallgrass in South Dakota here and I went to Tallgrass and I um, was actually wanting to stop then I wanted to you know become sober for a while you know in my mind and I did the 30 days there and it was a great program but it just wasn't quite ready so so you relapsed how many treatments did you go through three so then I went back to the cities and I went on relapse for three years and just, I mean, just the stupid things that you did, you know, and to just get by every day surviving, just to survive every day out on the streets. I was homeless. I was, oh. you know, it. I've gone through a lot and a lot of trauma. Yes, a lot of trauma. Do you think there was any trauma in your past that triggered your addiction? You know, I have you know worked with some therapists and whatnot and my my sister um she has cerebral palsy 
and she almost died when she was a baby and so that was kind of a lot of the trauma that family trauma yes family trauma that I've had in the past it's interesting that uh, they do say that there's the trauma and then there's also the trauma that you undergo when you are active in your addiction living Mm -hmm. on the streets people probably abusing or using you I'm sure there's lots of absolutely horror stories when I moved to Colorado and I went to this is my last treatment I went to up in Estes Park and it's what I really want to talk about today and how that has changed my life Um, being in treatment up in the mountains was amazing but I did end up relapsing after that and that's where it really got bad and I was living on my car with my boyfriend at the time for about two years and two years of living out of your car yeah and I you know would try and hide it from my parents and that was the hardest thing for me like hiding it from my family and being in the car all the time and doing all the things that you had to do to get drugs it 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 wears on a person why did you feel you had to hide it from your family because I didn't think that they would ever understand. It is hard for people who aren't addicted to understand. And I think also families expect certain things of you, right? Most family. If, if you're a good parent, you probably expect something of your child. Yeah. And so I think that is hard for, for people mm-hmm. um, to overcome that. Yeah, it was that I ended up getting in dr- you know, into drugs and I would see all my friends and classmates you know that they're succeeding they got that college degree they, they passed did. you by yeah and they my, went on with their lives and your life was stuck in this cycle of mm-hmm. probably getting high and getting sick right absolutely and I was embarrassed and I just didn't even want to face that you know so let's just get high again get high to avoid yeah having I don't want to think face about it. this let's just get high because when you get high you have no problem you know everything's just okay and so that's why it I got really worse when I was out in Colorado because I didn't have any family out there. You know, I was like, I can do whatever I want. My parents aren't going to see me, how I look, how I act, you know. But then I'd always call them wanting money. And they were enablers for a while. Wow. But that's because they loved me. And you know that. You know, it's hard. So hard to say no. Yeah. And you don't want to see your kids struggle or anybody struggle. But um, did you think you were going to die? Absolutely. You did. Yeah. Did you care? Well, I almost died one time. I got into a car accident. I I did a shot of heroin and I fell asleep and I at the wheel and ran into a tree and I had to go to the hospital. So stitches back, in my head. So back up one second. <laughs> so I think uh, the average person who doesn't, or the nor- I would say normal or average, but a person who doesn't suffer from addiction may think, well, how well, how in the world were you doing heroin while you were driving? I mean, <laughs> what were you thinking? And I think what they fail to understand is how far gone the brain is at that point. And you're not thinking rationally. You're using heroin while you're driving. Like people don't do that, you know. Right. If they're, I mean, right? Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, you don't even think like two. You know, you don't think in terms of like I could hurt myself or other people. Right. Oh, absolutely not. You don't think like that at all. I think because the the I really think of the addiction as being the hijacker of the brain. It just completely takes it over, and and absolutely. you are not you anymore. No, you're a totally different person, and it's just it's evil. And it's, it takes you over. It's like a darkness that takes you over. Were your parents worried that you were going to die? Yeah. My mom would be praying for me all the time and, you know, always hoping that she didn't get that call that, you know, I was dead in a ditch, um, you know, cause with my car or whatnot. And did you ever overdose? I was very close one time. Um, 
I have never had to get narcan though, but I was very close to where they thought, but kind of glad that they didn't because sometimes it takes a worse effect if you do it and you don't need it. Um, but I've been very, very close and that has scared me enough. I, I would like to say when I was using heroin that I was a very good heroin user. I <laughs> didn't, I never, um, put too much in my needle. I was very, very cautious about it because I didn't ever want to overdose. So I always just had the perfect amount every time. And, you know, as funny as that sounds, I mean, I was well, it cautious. Does, especially <laughs> with fentanyl in the drug supply now. So maybe right. you were just lucky. Probably. Because you can put the smallest amount of heroin in a needle. And if you have what's equivalent to four grains of salt of fentanyl, you know, that size, you can die. Well, in, in Colorado, it was more black tar. It wasn't fentanyl at the time. So that was kind of different. So, yeah, if it would have been fentanyl, yeah, I would have. Yeah, mm-hmm. that would have been scary. So I Well, let's talk about how you got to Colorado and went through treatment there. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about the treatment you went through there. So this was a... 12-step treatment, um, but it was also faith-based treatment. It was up in Estes Park. It was so beautiful. It was up in the mountains, and um, my parents had a friend that went there, and he had been sober for 15 years, probably longer now. So they knew a success story. Yes, so they brought me out there, and I was so scared to go out there on my own, you know. I was like, I'm going out here not knowing anybody, but I got there, and I still have my picture today, what I looked like when I went out there. I'm like, wow. And um, I kicked and screamed, kicked and screamed the whole time. My mom, you could just see the tears in her eyes, you know, having to drop her daughter off. And it, So you it wanted to go or you didn't want to go? Both. <laughs> I wanted to. It was time. You knew you were at the end of the yeah. line, kind of. Yeah. But at the time when you're going, you're like, oh, gosh, I'm going to feel like crap. And the, the suffering that you have to undergo in the withdrawal process. Yes. Yeah. Which, so, which they can help with some medically assisted mm-hmm. Um you know, treatments to help lessen the suffering, but you still have to, I think, experience some of it. I don't think it, yep, they can you take do. it away entirely. Correct. And when I got there, and since I was so messed up on meth, I was up for days and I had that paranoia. I got there and I immediately said I was going to kill myself. And I went into like the psychosis and kill myself. I hate everybody, you know, swearing up and down. And I like hit the nurse. And so they handcuffed me and I went to jail. <laughs> you went to jail right after yeah. you went into treatment. Yeah. As you were coming down off of all this stuff. Yes. And then what happened? So my mom and I, my mom called the treatment center and I kind of, you know, said that, you know, I'm just coming off of drugs. This is not what I want. You know, can I please get out, go back to treatment? So, yes, they said that I could, you know, come they back. They let you back. Well, that's yes. really good because Absolutely. I, I've told the story about, you know, taking Emily. It was just an outpatient treatment, but she mm-hmm. swore at, and she was still a teenager. But she swore at the counselor and they kicked her out and they never let her back. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think that that's the right tactic to take either. I don't know. For some reason, we have to keep giving people we as do. many chances as we can mm-hmm. and acting through love instead of punishment. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, as come as an addict, yeah. I mean, if it's not a punishment and it's love, it's you're way more likely to succeed. So what, uh, what was that treatment like for you? It was amazing. Um, so once I you know, um, actually was agreed to everything. And I was, um, once your system has sort of cleared out. Yep. Um, it, it was great. I, we had 
we were all assigned a counselor, so we met with our counselor twice a week, and otherwise we did these big groups, and there was just something special about being up in the mountains and being able to just sit there in silence and look at the beautiful scenery and take walks and by the river, and it was just like God telling me this is time, you know, it's time to get better, and... I'm going to guide you and walk with you, and it was great. How I, long of a program was that? 30 days. So you get out in 30 days. So, yeah, it was quite early because I'm like, geez, I was just, you know, at 30 days you're just, like, starting to, like, really sink everything in, and it's everything's starting to. And there's no magic number about 30 days. We all know it takes 13 to 18 months for the brain to absolutely. heal. Absolutely. And it sounds like it was a healing place for you, but yet that time, I mean, that, that's just what insurance will cover, right? So, right. or, or what right. they'll can get payment for. And so, mm-hmm. um, so then this was the first time I was wanting to go to sober living afterwards. And that to me, looking back is a huge thing. It's a huge transition. You can't just leave treatment and go home to the same thing. You know, I believe that sober living is something that people need. Um, so I went to sober living down in Aurora, Colorado called sobriety first. And, um, I was, I was so nervous. I was going to this house of women, not knowing anybody, not having a car, not having a license, you know, very nervous, but got down there and it was, they were nice houses and a good, um, they were well well run. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It was called Sobriety First, and um, it was two ladies that ran it. They had four women's houses and four um, men's houses. So um, we had to find a job within two weeks. You pay a fee to get in. And Sounds a lot like the Oxford House model yes. that we have here in Sioux yep, Falls now, Very too. similar. So I ended up finding a job at a tanning salon, and everything was good. I went to my AA meetings, found a sponsor, and but there was still one part missing. Now that I look back, it was my faith. I didn't have any faith back then. I just kind of went on with, you know, the 12 steps and everything else, but I still knew something was missing. So I was in that house for about four months and I relapsed for the two years. After four months, you relapsed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, my dad just sent you to this really nice treatment center and cost a fortune. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, um, it just, caught me again and that's where I went on for a couple of years and then um oh so a couple of years you oh, continue yeah. to use yeah that's when I was living out of my car for the couple of years okay sure I'm following yep and I had enough enough was enough I, it was cold in my car and I just couldn't handle it anymore I was it was I was just done that's sometimes when you're done you're just done you're sick and tired of being sick and tired you just can't handle it anymore. Your body gives up. You're, you know, now they tired. Some people would call that rock bottom. Yes. I always say, though, we, we can't wait for our loved ones to hit rock bottom because that can be death or brain damage. Yep. Um, but for, in your case, you were lucky. Yes. You just got fed up and sick of yourself. Yep, I did. And so I asked the sober living again if I could come in again, and they said yes. And... Um, my boyfriend was in jail, and I said, okay, I don't want to live in the car myself, so I ended up going into sober living again, 
when he got out of jail, he got into the sober living too in the guy's houses. And then I found out I was pregnant. <laughs> oh, so did you go through withdrawals? Yes. Major while withdrawals. While you were pregnant? Yes. And I... And you had been using while you were pregnant, when you first got pregnant? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I went through the were withdrawals. You scared? Yes. I was very scared to find that out. And the withdrawals, I thought that, you know, that would hurt the baby and his carriage. I wasn't, you know, quite sure. And then I was, I got on the Suboxone program, which saved my life. I got an amazing, amazing doctor. In Colorado. In Colorado. Who was mm-hmm. doing medically assisted treatment. And we should let people know that yeah. Suboxone is a drug that counteracts the opioid receptors yep. in the body. So it, it helps to reduce the cravings. Yep. And then if you were to use, it really wouldn't give you that high. Right. Um, Suboxone can be abused. Yes. Um, there are cases of that happening. We know that can happen. Yeah. Tell me how this, how and why the Suboxone worked for you. And there are great success rates, much better. I mm-hmm. think we also need to cover the fact that there's some stigma around using a drug to te- treat drug addiction. Right. And, you know, um, some people, yeah, are like, you need to get off this medication. You need to get off this medication. But it's like, you don't really know how or why it's being used. Um, my doctor, she's the one who who knows. They've had studies to where... Addicts who are on Suboxone for, I think, two to five years are the ones who will stay sober in the longest or who have a very... Because your brain is probably healed and recovered from the addiction by then. Exactly. So tell me how the Suboxone works for you. So the Suboxone works, I take it um, every morning and it just, honestly, it's just kind of like if somebody would take their um, insulin every day. You know, it's very similar to that. Um, it doesn't make you feel high. doesn't make, you know, um, I will say the one thing is that you do get withdrawals from it if you... If you miss it. Miss it, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, just like you would an antidepressant. Exactly. So, um, but that's, that's not the worst case. It's, it's better than the alternative. You know, it's better than heroin and it's keeping me sober, yeah. honestly. Yeah, um, that and your faith. And my faith, yes, is number one always. How do you how do you account that your faith keeps you sober? Explain. When I was saved over a year ago, I... So you were in a church setting or what? No, actually it was um, over TV. I was saved by Jimmy Schweigert Ministries. And um, I had just started watching all of his sermons and kind of following their Bible study and I started going to the Bible and reading the Bible and miracles were happening for me. Tell me what you mean. I was completely changed. Like my thought process was completely changed and I was, I got a, I got a good job finally. And so I, things were positive were happening in your yeah, life. And I was not so negative anymore. I, God took away my obsession to use. I never thought that was going to happen. I hear this all the time. Oh, God took away my obsession to use. God did this, you know, and I'm like, oh, I don't feel like that's ever going to happen to me. And he did. Today, I do not have any obsession. You don't think about it. You don't daydream about it. You don't. Absolutely not. That's great. And he's just changed me into a, a whole new person. I'm just a whole new person. Like if you were to know me, 
you know, seven years ago, you would be like, wow, you're completely different. I mean, my attitude, just my, my smile, my look, the way I do things and yeah. Tell me about your baby. So you had been using when you first got pregnant and you stopped. Yes. Went through withdrawals while you were pregnant. Yes. And, um, I just, I just knew, I just kept asking God and, you know, I just need to get away from this obsession. I'm pregnant now. You gave me this miracle baby and I'm going to, you know, stop. I need to stop and away with my obsession and all the things he did for me. I just was able to go the right direction and I stopped smoking cigarettes. I stopped everything. I mean, um, it was just, oh, it was just amazing. I guess I'm sorry. I don't have the words right now. That's okay. And so when your baby was born, you had a girl. Yes. I had a baby girl and her, her name, name is, is Jade. Jade. Yes. And she has definitely changed my life for the better. I mean, I call her my miracle baby because without her, I don't think that I would be where I'm at today. I feel like I would still be using. And is Jade okay? She is absolutely beautiful. So no harmful effects that you know of. How old is she now? She's eight months. Eight months. So if there were some learning issues or something because of your... It was in the first like month. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, of, of being pregnant, like my first, like, cause I found out I was pregnant five weeks and so it was really, really and right then you stopped and right then I stopped because Uh I was like, I have this miracle. And the Suboxone, you were able to take that while you were pregnant. Yes. My, um, actually I was really excited because my doctor, she was a, um, OBGYN and an addiction doctor. Wow. That's an unusual combination. Oh, I know, but it was awesome. So good for you. Yeah. It worked perfect. She monitored my Suboxone and, um, when I had Jade, she didn't have any withdrawals coming out. Everything was good. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. So a year and a half now, she's eight months and for a year and a half you've been sober. So connection, they always say, is really the secret or the key to addiction. Yes. Connection. And so by having other people who are there to support you, I think that's been probably the hardest thing about Mm COVID-19 is the lack of connection for people who are suffering from substance use disorder. Oh, I'm sure. Have you had any effects from that? Or I suppose you've had your baby girl to focus on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nope, that hasn't affected me no. at all. That's good. That's really good. So, so what, do, what do people need to understand about addiction that you think they may not now? I think that um, addicts need to understand that it's okay to talk about your addiction. Because there are people, a lot of people are afraid to reveal that they've either struggled or are struggling. Right. And I think it's okay to talk about it. And I feel like people like that have had success stories or, you know, people that are sober, if they could get out and talk to people and maybe get on podcasts like this and just show people that you've done it, you know what I mean? Like, or go to, if I could go talk to Tallgrass or any other treatment center and show people like, look at my story. I did it. You can do it. And if you're having a tough time and you're just here because you want to satisfy your parents, come talk to me and, you know, let's, let's kind of figure out why you don't want to do this for yourself. 
It's they, important that people know they're not alone in their struggle. Right. And they are never alone because they always have God. And I know that everybody doesn't believe in God. But, you know, with the 12 steps, you can have your own God. I personally would like to do more of a faith-based um, sober living just because I feel like... It worked for you. It worked for Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. And it's just so wonderful that you're willing to share your story. I have noticed over the years... People, more people are willing to talk about their struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's changed in the last decade. That I think also because of the prevalence that we have now, um, the number of overdose deaths that we have, mm-hmm. we have to talk about it. That's yeah. the first step in, in making a difference is t- bringing it out of the shadows and into the light. Absolutely. And coming from like um, a person now that isn't using. Um, isn't an active addiction. I just would like to, you know, say that I still do struggle. It's never going to be easy, but it's a different type of struggle. Yeah. Well, we all struggle with something, right? That's part of the human condition, I think, is the struggle that we all face. You know, one thing I would like to hear from you, because I hear all the time from so many family members, especially moms and dads, who are just so frustrated because they've tried to help their loved one. And I'm sure so many people tried to help you. And for seven years, you were on this journey where, you know, you went to treatment, but it you relapsed. And that can often be seen as a failure, and it isn't. It's part of the disease. But what advice do you have for loved ones or for families who might be listening to this podcast? Never give up on your loved one. Never give up on them. Pray for them and let them know that you care about them and that you're there for them and that you will always have an ear to listen to them. Because when somebody is in that addiction, they just, again, they feel alone. They feel like nobody cares about them anymore. You feel like everybody hates you and... I would just say, don't give up ever and just always let them know that you are there for them in the right way that, you know, you're not enabling them. Right. With healthy boundaries where you're not going to support maybe an addiction, but you're going to let them know that that you're there for their healing and to help them. Yep. Mm -hmm. And that you'll never, you're not judging them either because you always, I always felt judged when I was using, you know, you're judging me, you know, just let them know that this is not a judgmental issue. Well, the more we can make people understand that addiction is a disease of the brain, I think mm-hmm. that takes the judgment out of it. Right. But our society is not quite there yet. Correct. Some people are, but many, many are not. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They see it as a character flaw. Yep. And we're trying to change that here. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for helping us with our mission. Yes. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. This was an awesome opportunity. Thank you for joining us. For resources for families and how to get help, just go to Emily's Hope at paintingapathtorecovery.org. If you found this podcast helpful, please consider giving us a positive review. Thank you.